the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Planted with Sarah. I'm Sarah Pine, your host. And today we have multi-generational, actually second-generation cannabis cultivator, cannabis professional, and cannabis real estate, and non-cannabis real estate, actually, professional, Yaro Kubrin on the show. Yaro, I'm so excited to have you here today. You have such a wide swath of experience, both pre-legalization and now, and you've just done so many interesting things in so many interesting spaces. I'm really excited to dig in on the conversation today. Thank you. And it's, you know, it's been a pleasure to know you, not as much as I'd like to, but for quite a while now, some number of years. And, you know, looking at the the content that you've created on this, on this, you know, planted, um, it, you know, it, it, it feels really good because I've seen the caliber of uh, people you've, you've had on here. And it's, uh, it feels really good to be here today. Thank you so much. Well, you know, I just remember when we first met, it was in the before times before the pandemic. <laughs> and we were at a conference called The State of Cannabis in Long Beach. And it was you, me, a bunch of people, our colleagues in the industry, and also some really amazing advocates. Um, and we just had some really great conversations. So I was really excited to get the chance to be able to sit down with you and, and, and dig in a little more. Because, you know, it's like in conferences, we get some we get some good quality time, but it can be very much where we're kind of throwing sound bites at one another because there's so much going That's on right. around us. Yeah. You don't get a chance to just really drill down with an individual because there's too many people. Yeah. And there's so many people that you got to catch up with, too, because, you know, as, as nice as it is to have the virtual connection, it's like you really make those connections when you're face to face, right? There's no substitute for FaceTime, especially in the growing industry and to great trust and rapport. I mean, Zoom did it is its darndest, you know, during COVID. But uh, uh, you know, cannabis has always been a social industry before it was an industry, and so I don't, I don't think it gets rid of that need to to have real interaction with real people and to be able to create those connections. Yeah, I I tried to do a few of the the Zoom get together kind of happy hour things, and um, it's a uh, I, I applaud the effort, like because we really needed to. You know, kind it's of all noble but contrived exercise. <laughs> it is, especially when like you're, you know, it's a cannabis-related social event, so you can hear people off-screen coughing. They're <laughs> like, oh, you know, <laughs> hey well, there. You know, when, when we judged the, the the cup this past year, you know, we had these standing weekly meetings amongst the judges and the blakes, you know, who take a very hands-on approach to to making sure that their judges are being. Uh, productive and sharing their opinions. And during those Zooms, people did consume and not off screen. And and that was kind of cool. I was like, we're ripping on these pens while we're talking. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. It, it's, a, it's a whole different thing. And I, I think it's good that we've been able to utilize these tools, but it's also really nice that we're finally starting to be able to come back and do things in person. I just I just went to my first baseball game um, since the pandemic. And it was Tell me it was Giants and not the A's or I'm hanging up. It was the A's. Don't hang oh. up. Oh. <laughs> I like them both. I'm a Bay Area girl. Five one oh instead of the four one five. I mean your pedestal sunk just a little bit. <laughs> I'm I'm gonna let it go. As long as you tell me that 
you're a Niners fan and not a Raiders fan? Or are you fully planted in the 510? I married into a Raiders family. And I, you know, for me, the sports ball, mm, you know, I appreciate it for its community building and all that. I call everything sports ball, jokingly. But, you know, true confession, wasn't an athlete, did softball in elementary school and was thrilled when I was so bad that the girls threatened to kick my booty if I came back because I had an excuse not to go to softball practice anymore. Well, this is going to be a rough, a rough interview now <laughs> knowing that you're not a Giants fan and you're not a Niners fan. So, Oh, I'm a Giants you- fan too. Don't get me wrong. I love the Giants. Oh. Okay. But, you know, the Niners, just for the sake of my marriage, I, I can't, I can't, I can, yeah. I can be appreciative, but I can't be a fan. Or after this, I start slowly chipping away at the two of you and <laughs> bring you over to the red and gold. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, you know, it would, it would serve the Raiders right after they abandoned us and gone to Vegas. So Yeah, where they, they went to like rhinestone city or something yeah where you know it's it's really affecting everything those you don't see the seats as full as you did here in good old oakland so well welcome to the red and gold (laughs) thank you we've won a lot of super bowls (laughs) looking forward to more and we have room for two more well thank you thank you we'll start negotiations after we finish our episode Well, speaking of, first question that I always love to ask my guests, and this one I'm imagining is going to be a little different than most. What was your first cannabis experience? Well, I'm ashamed to admit it, actually. Um, When I was four years old and was going to a 29th Street Community Feminist Daycare Center Mm -hmm. being run by a bunch of hippies. One of the um, people who was tasked with watching the kids took all the kids to the park, sat us down in a circle. I thought we were playing Duck, Duck, Goose and passed around a joint to little children. Now, today, if somebody did that to my kid, whether my kid was four or 14, I would beat them. Mm. Probably. But... There was this embrace of the plant back then by certain subsections that maybe wasn't as appreciative of the need for this to be an age-restricted product. Mm -hmm. We didn't have the science around the developmental stuff that goes on in the brain until 25 years old. And my dad almost beat that counselor, that that person's butt anyway, because he was so upset. And so um, that was my first introduction to cannabis. I don't per se, remember the experience of being intoxicated. Mm-hmm. But I certainly remember going, oh, I thought we were sitting in a circle to play Duck, Duck, Goose. And that wasn't the case. So many years went by and I never tried it again. And then um, I tried it as a teenager. Um, and um, uh, and I'm not in favor of teenagers using cannabis <laughs> either. So I don't think that I'm an example of uh, an evolved approach to access to a psychotropic substance. Um, and I don't think that, uh, young evolving adults should, uh, uh, think that cannabis, uh, will have a positive effect on their drive and their motivation. Uh, and now as a parent myself to teenagers, I get to, you know, explain that 
the world has evolved. Our understanding of the plant has evolved. Our appreciation has evolved, but so too is our understanding of the need for this to really be age restricted. And, yeah. to, and, and so, and, and it's interesting because, you know, when we talk about the stigma of the plant, you know, I, I have a really interesting metric that I ask people around that. I'm like, do you consume cannabis in front of your children? And then I ask them if they consume alcohol in front of their children. And I just contrast those answers. If there is a contrast in those answers. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and so, um, you know, my wife and I are hoping to take all the cool out of it by uh, making it something that mom and dad are comfortable with, but that, you know, isn't so salacious that the kids would look at the use of cannabis as some uh, iteration of their rebellion. Um, and so, yeah, way too young and in communities that were already embracing the plant, um, but weren't understanding the need to have some guardrails. Yeah, I, I totally hear that. And it's that's actually like when I've talked to a lot of guests about their first experience, it's usually, you know, they're underage. And we always we say, okay, so listeners out there, that doesn't mean that we condone youth access. It's just, it is what it is. It's what we did. And it's, you know, there is that precocious nature of, you know, when you're a teenager, oh, it's taboo. I want to know what this is all about. And you're right. The normalization of adult use makes it less appealing to kids. And and for those of you listening out there, if you've listened to many episodes, you know, we've had these conversations before. They're very important conversations to have about our first time. And though it may not have been the optimal time that looking back on it, it also shapes how we see it now. And that's a huge thing. And for you know, when we're looking at medicinal use in children, that's a totally different thing because there have been it's a noble category <laughs> that, you know, yeah. if you've got epilepsy and you're whatever years old and this is solving things. Yeah. Totally different. And I'm I'm excited about, you know, the the, the evolution of, of medical efficacy for, for patients of all ages. <laughs> and for me, I really truly believe that there are two substantial benefits to regulated cannabis. The first is lab testing. Yeah. And the second is it being an age restricted product. Absolutely. I'm committed to both. Yeah. Well, that's it. So this past weekend, when I went up north to gold country to see my in-laws and my my niece was graduating, our niece was graduating from middle school, we took my father-in-law to his first dispensary. And he doesn't partake, but it was really interesting, like bringing him in and explaining things and really normalizing it, but also having to explain to him that, you know, being in his 80s, that he still had to have his ID to get in. And that's, I think, the thing that the public doesn't understand, you know, legally. Yeah, because he's not getting carded for a beer, that's for sure. Not when you're pushing 80. <laughs> no, no. And and that's, I think, what the public, you know, needs to understand when these dispensaries are opening is that it does lessen access because no matter how old you are, if you don't have an ID, you're not getting in. That's right. And as it should be. And, you know, just to be clear, my parents did not sanction any of that. And, you know, in spite of the fact that my mom was a cannabis cultivator when I was very young, uh, was never uh, thinking that it should be anything other than an age restricted product, and 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 so you know I thank them for not giving me a pass, not supporting that, uh, reprimanding me, punishing me, explaining to me those risks, um, uh, you know, and 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 uh, and 
and really, really not endorsing the notion that just because I felt old enough to do things meant that I was old enough. That's it completely. That's I, I found out years later that my mother would partake from time to time with cannabis, but she never – I didn't know about it. You know, it was like something like when my aunt would come home from college and the kids would be asleep and, you know, I found out about it later. But when I was precocious and in getting into it, she was like, well, she pulled me out of school when she found my bong. She was like, okay, you and I need to have a talk. You are, yeah. you're far too young to be even doing this and it's not legal. And, you know, you're a young mind. And, you know, it's like, it, it's, there's a... I think the thing that people need to understand is even though adults may use it, adults are still actively concerned about. I think to me, the definition of normalization of cannabis consumption means also this tethering to it being age restricted and that yeah. those two go hand in hand. Um, and that, you know, I'm not, I'm not sanctioning any premature right uh, exploration and it's challenging. I think, you know, certainly as a parent of two, you know, uh, there's a way in which exploration of ingesting intoxicants that may have worked in previous generations doesn't work in a fentanyl generation. No. So there are places where kids could, you know, make mistakes, act a fool, do some stupid things and make bad choices, but it didn't end up with them in the morgue. Right. And now we're in a different era, you know, we're in a different era. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think of... Now, what worries me for this next generation climate change and fentanyl it's it's a it's a scary thing I, I i just lost a friend the other week um to a fentanyl overdose and it's oh. it's frightening it's frightening but you know it's i think one of the biggest things when we're dealing with youth and youth access it's like uh last year when i interviewed david crosby and one of our Listeners had a question for him about, you know, actually it was Mara Gordon said, you know, how, what do you, how would you talk to teens about cannabis? And he was like, tell them the truth. Just tell them the truth. It's like you can, you can tell a child the truth about something and let them know that in addition, part of the truth is it's not for them at this age. I just have to say, as an aside, adore Mara Gordon and I helped to sell her house in Sonoma County as a part of a real estate team as a marketing manager and you took uh, her away from me I took her away from you but we got an <laughs> overlist offer within four days of being five days of being on the market in the dead of winter at Christmas and handled it and as a result her and her amazing husband are now what do you call them sunbirds or people who live in Baja um, yeah but Mara is a great example of somebody who is so bright you can see it. Oh, and absolutely. is committed to the medical side of cannabis. And I think sometimes in this, you know, post-adult use era, the medical side doesn't get as much of the, the limelight or, the, or, or enough of the, the conversation. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, as, as somebody with two not-so-young parents who have their own medical ailments, uh, it's the medicine side that I still think has the most promise for, for society. I, I agree. I agree. That's that's the side that I'm the most interested in. And it's not to say that I have any issues with the adult use or, as some people may refer to it, as the recreational side of cannabis. I just don't find it as interesting, personally. It's not as innovative. 
I mean, it's just about normalizing and understanding that people equalizing themselves or having wellness doesn't mean that they have to be suffering from AIDS in order to enjoy cannabis, but it's not the most exciting, innovative, you know, earth shaking stuff. And, and, you know, we still haven't cured cancer. So I'm really excited. Go Israel. Keep, keep, keep studying and let's, let's figure out, let's unlock these 150 plus cannabinoids and understand those ratios, those inputs and those form factors, because uh, we still have some diseases to cure. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then when we are looking at, you know, the medicinal aspect, you know, the one thing I think people are forgetting is that in states where we're seeing, you know, full on legalization, it's actually creating access to a whole other part of society that isn't necessarily using it to get high. It's just that they didn't want to have the stigma of having a medical card and they want to use it for other things. And a lot of times it's non-euphoric. I mean, those seniors, I, I, I imagine that's where all these little micro dosing mints go as well as the topicals, you know, just to keep it <laughs> a little off color suppositories and other form factors that, yeah, that's probably never going to be my form factor. Uh, knock on wood, but um, but a, a, you're absolutely right. There are people that were never opposed to it, but didn't want to have to source through unconventional or unregulated uh, means. And now these, you know, this retail is really, I think, changing the game. It's challenging for me, though, because, you know, I'm looking at what's going on in California. And, you know, from afar, anybody from outside of California thinks that there's a single cannabis market in California, instead of understanding there's 58 counties with 58 different variations, right? And didn't necessarily understand that post Proposition 64, and adult use, that you know, three quarters of those counties or municipalities weren't allowing for brick and mortar retail. And that now we're maybe down to two thirds, not allowing for brick and mortar retail. And that when we're lamenting, you know, the oversupply or saturation or taxation, that there's still this glaring issue around supply chain, which is a lack of retail. And that lack of retail is really pronounced. And we're seeing it in other areas too, limited licensed markets, where it's great that there's fantastic free revenue value that's created by, uh, you know, achieving a coveted brick and mortar retail license. But when we think about it from a patient and society and wellness and just access perspective, I can go buy anything else with less hoops and with more options. And brick and mortar is really a place where I'm hoping not to sound like a capitalist because I'm a hippie too, but like I really am looking forward to a free market that allows a proliferation of retail and then some will fail, some won't. That's the way business is. But like I grew up for a portion of my childhood in the avenues in San Francisco and like 11th and Irving had like three pizza places and like nobody was upset that there was mozzarella on every corner. Nobody was suggesting that there was too much pepperoni in the neighborhood. And I don't know which pizza places lasted and how long those businesses lasted, but there certainly wasn't any restriction on pizza places in the avenues. And, you know, I look at that the same with like coffee, like coffee is the biggest drug that's consumed, I think globally. And like, if there's a pizza and a Starbucks and a, you know, and a, and a, what have you, like, People are not really worried about it. Those businesses are going to take risk. They're going to stand up those businesses. Some will do well. Some will do better. Some might not make it. Some might do really, really well. And yet when we have cannabis retail, we've got this bottleneck and we've got it not just in California where we really, really need to make it 
easier for people to access buying something, trying something, exploring a new form factor. But we also have it in these new markets or newly regulated adult use markets like New York. You know, they promised they were going to get retail open in the same year that they were allowing their, you know, justice involved in hemp farmers transitioning to cannabis cultivation. And they fulfilled that promise in a single digit way. But when you have single digit retail open and you're lamenting all of the unregulated places where people can get it, it's like, well, do we want to put our effort into enforcing against the non-regulated retail or do we want to take the wind out of the sails there by opening up accessible access to retail across that state and to allow people to just go to a neighborhood store and get whatever it is that they're excited about or that they're already familiar with. And so it's like, and now they're talking about like putting resources into enforcing it and regular market. It's like, well, why don't, and like, I, I understand that we need carrots and sticks, right? you know? Yeah. Plato or oro, as they would say in Colombia 25 years ago, whatever, you know, both the lead and the gold, but like the incentive, like if you're putting resources into enforcement before you put resources into opening up a substantial number of regulated brick and mortar doors, boy, I just don't really understand that approach. And now, you know, I, I just finished up an 18 month stint as a director of real estate for a commercial real estate development company that focused solely on brick and mortar retail in emerging markets. And it was sad and exciting to me that within California, new cities, we considered emerging markets. It was sad and exciting to me that in 2023, you know, years and years and years after the uh, passage of adult use that, hey, there might be a retail location in Healdsburg, Sonoma County, or in Sausalito, Marin County. Right. And like, there's some really nice markets where there's some very affluent people who would gladly pay a tax-induced premium to be able to get products in an accessible, easy, relaxed manner where if they had a you know an issue with something, they could bring it back. They don't have to figure out what the delivery company is going to do with a leaking cartridge and where we still don't have that. And so, you know, I, I saw recently that San Francisco had put a moratorium on retail or new retail. And I was very conflicted about that. Mm -hmm. you know, on the one hand, yeah. it's only a seven by seven square mile. I get it. Like, how many? And yet, on the other hand, the only thing that cannabis has ever wanted was to be treated normally. And that's still not totally normal. Like, yes, my city by the bay, my hometown, birthplace, represent, I, you know, was ahead of the curve in sort of saying, yeah, we don't want, you know, big box stores because the profits from those big box stores will get sucked up to corporate and spent outside the area. So they they certainly were at, at, the, at the forefront of, of sort of not just embracing capitalism across the board, but when you have restrictions on capitalism, that's not being treated equally and normally. And 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 if you know if if three out of five small businesses in the United States don't succeed past X number of years, then why are we making kings and queens and winners and losers by the way in which we issue these coveted brick and mortar permits? And you know, I, sadly, I see I see many variations of those. Uh, policy mistakes and missteps being executed in other states. Yeah. Now, thinking about that, because it is the the moratorium is is it's interesting because I I see both sides of it, um, and and like you, I am somebody who believes you know in a free and open market. But do you think that if there were more municipalities that allowed brick and mortar, that we wouldn't see as much concentration in the markets? where brick and mortar is more readily allowed? 
Do you think it's spread That's out a little more? Ask me tough questions. No, <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I think that there are pockets of density that may not be sustainable, that are a byproduct of areas that are retail deserts, and that the key to solving that is to open it all up in a way that is uh, fair with quicker permitting times because mm -hmm. of the cost of development and where we allow winners and losers, but we lower the cost and the barrier to entry so that people like myself, verified social equity applicants, have a fighting chance and where it doesn't have to be about the most resourced being the most successful and where, you, you know, I mean, Kika Keith in Los Angeles, um, it took her over a thousand days to get her store opened because of the permitting process. Very few people can sit there and spend money and carrying costs and development fees and real estate carrying costs for a thousand days to yeah. be able to uh, able to just compete. And so um, I think that there are markets where there's there's probably unsustainable density, but I, I think we have to think about like, what are the threats to regulated cannabis? And, 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 and are those threats within the regulated system or are those threats unregulated cannabis or are those threats not even cannabis related? Is it, you know, uh, other interests that don't want to necessarily see it a flourishing and sustainable regulated cannabis model. And and I think that for the most part, the threats to regulated cannabis are within the regulated cannabis model. And that like people are lamenting like the illicit market. And I'm like, well, couldn't we fix a lot of the stuff over here? And wouldn't that mean that the focus isn't over there? And it reminds me of that little cliche about like when you have one finger pointed out, you have five fingers pointed back at you. And it's like, if we fixed access to retail, if we fixed the cost and time for permitting and entitlements. And if we fixed, you know, this, the, the, the tax structures, would we be pointing to the illicit market? Maybe, but maybe not with, maybe not with as many fingers and maybe not as vehemently and maybe not with as much frustration. And, and, and I just think it's so challenging because, you know, regulated cannabis operators put so much time and effort in, and, and resources into standing up those businesses. And it would be really easy for them to see the unregulated market as their threat. The other thing that's always also very challenging for me is that if you listen to anybody who talks about like the unregulated market versus the regulated market, there are these talking points, these cliches that become embedded in the conversation that have never really been stress tested. I'll give you a couple examples. The one that makes me want to sort of like go is like, I've been hearing that there's going to be federal legalization in three to five years for more than three to five years. Like either update your talking points or shred the notion that this is like a, a fait accompli that it's going to happen, like, or that it's going to happen in those timelines. And the other one that I hear a lot in California is that, you know, 80% of the cannabis produced in California is in the illicit market. And I'm like, well, where did you get that statistic? I think you heard it at cocktail party where somebody <laughs> said it because they quoted a report, but like last I checked, the, the mere nature of the fact that it was illicit means you can't really validate those statistics very well. I mean, I suppose you could use the maps from California of illicit grows, but that doesn't take into account warehouse and how many of those grows got bud rot and had to be shredded versus actually got used. And so like this whole 80-20 thing that people have been throwing around in this industry for a number of years, like I'm like, I have some, you know, 
it may be 30 years old, but I have some experience in the illicit market. And last time I checked, the, the you know, part of what made it illicit was that it wasn't well known and widely publicized. And so why do we think that now in regulated cannabis, we have this knowledge about how much is being made that's not a part of the regulated supply chain? It just, it just, I can't even understand it. So it sounds like what you're saying is that a lot of the talking points that people have around that are actually a bad game of telephone. They are things that people wrote or data companies produced that were fuzzy logic-y best guesses. And, you know, all of us want to appear current in our understanding and our phrasing, our vernacular and what we say. And if something gets echo chambered enough, it becomes accepted as fact. And, <laughs> and, and I'm like, um, yeah, no, I don't think I'm going to, I don't think I'm going to just regurgitate something I heard because it sounded credible. Right. Um, <laughs> like, mm, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> and, and then also, you know, I, I think that, you know, a lot of the illicit production in California that really fed the rest of the country. There's been a lot of changes in that too, because now as there's legal markets in other states that are, you know, halfway to New York, you know, my guess would be that there's probably a percentage of diversion there that's affecting production here. And so um, I just, you know, I know I got on a rant and a ramble and a riff, but like the, the lack of access to brick and mortar retail is one of the biggest internal threats to regulated cannabis in maturing and newly regulated markets. And, and, and I say that not just as someone who's worked in cannabis real estate for a really long time, and not just as someone who spent the you know previous 18 months developing and securing uh, suitable sites for retail, which was a lot of lift, a lot of stress, a lot of uncertainty, but also just looking at the supply chain in California. And, and, and so, you know, when these new markets come on, I hear them say things like, oh, we've learned our lessons. We went on a listening tour of California. We went on a listening tour of Colorado and we're going to be different. And sometimes there are some changes. Sometimes there are some substantial changes, you know, prioritizing social equity instead of having it be a bolt on after the fact or an asterisk, you know, and, and kudos to those new states or new markets that are bringing in either uh, their first program or adult use when they had a previous medical. But when you go around and you do those listening tours, you know, there's a mistake in public policy that also happens, which is you can replicate the thinking that led to the mistakes that now you're going and 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 doing again right so like you know and there's this celebration of regulators some of whom so you know presided over substantial dumpster fires and yet those people get celebrated they get brought out they get listened to it's like tell us how to do it and and, and <laughs> you know and some of it is like well why don't you do the exact opposite of what that person did because look how that worked out <laughs> right 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 yeah that's it and and i think you know there's 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 this narrative um I still think even if they're doing the tours, I mean, like you said, they're still they're still in reinventing that wheel that's like missing chunks. <laughs> you know, it's still a clunky ride. Big, big chunks, which means I'm now blowing chunks because I'm like, how did you not see that this was going to happen? When right. New York said they were going to get their retail open by the end of the year, I I told everybody in the office, I'll bet a body part that that doesn't happen the way they planned it out. And then they had like, what, less than 10 by the end of the year. So they could still say they did it. But in terms of actually providing a regulated outlet for the biomass that was produced through their regulated cultivation, no, they have an eye of the needle. So what did they do? They created massive incentives 
for diversion. I'm not saying anybody did or didn't. I'm not over there. But I know if I was a farmer and I was sitting on a lot of biomass and I had a handful of retail locations that I could uh, to, you know, uh, compliantly monetize that that through, um, I'd be concerned about making my mortgage payment, my fiduciary duty to my investors. And I, they created an incentive to color outside the lines by not establishing a supply chain from the top to the bottom that could support selling what was created through cultivation. And I'm like, and this was like, New York's an incredibly sophisticated market. It's a, it's our you know financial center for the, for the country. Like there's a lot of smart people over there and they still kind of did a like, duh, 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 duh. And, and, and for those of us with, you know, experience in other, other more mature markets, it was, it was not entirely uh, unpredictable. Right. Yeah. I mean, I I was just there in April. Yeah, and, you went to Unpacked, right? Yeah, and I follow everything you do. I'm like fan <laughs> from afar. Oh, <laughs> you don't have to be that far. You're. I'm just a call away. <laughs> Still a Raiders fan, so we're gonna have to see how that goes. <laughs> but you know, yeah, I was there for Unpacked, and every block had a smoke shop where you could buy yeah. weed, and it was. Yeah. I mean, it's it's an interesting thing because, like you were mentioning, you know, one of the things that we're is a huge roadblock is is the cost of entry and the extreme taxation. And when people are thinking that federal legalization will solve all our woes, well, it's going to add more taxes onto that as well. And like for the state of California, they were really disappointed after legalization that they did not get the taxes that they thought they were going to. But if they had actually not had such high taxation, we would have had more consumers in the legalized market. And if we had an easier, like lowering the barriers to entry, we would have a lot more people in the unregulated market participating in the regulated market. I've had great success with the Office of Cannabis in San Francisco, as well as- They're a know, great team. They're a great group they're a great of people. Team. You know, and, you know, cannabis control on a state level, which, by the way, all the successful, highly talented people in San Francisco seem to get plucked up to the state level. You know, whether you're talking to Cole Elliott, Eugene Hillsman, when I talk to people in San Francisco, I'm like, please don't take a job in Sacramento because I really like you guys here. But I've had great success with both the local and state level. Locally, I have a distribution permit and um, I have I have no complaints with them. Some of them frankly, are brilliant. Yeah, you know? absolutely. I, I was really I, glad to see some of the team go to San Francisco. I mean, go to the state, though I miss them on the local level. But they're still they're still contending with people who... Here's the butt. Right? Yeah. Here's the butt. That guy has a PhD in public policy. This lady is super, you know, got her master's in public administration. But I'm going to tell them something that's so simple. I don't understand why it didn't get figured out. When you take a little bit instead of a big bite and you create a big tent and you lower the barriers to entry and you lower the costs and you accelerate the time for permitting, you end up getting a bigger tax revenue because you're not squeezing the juice Bingo. out of every entity. And so... You know, public policy, which I studied at USF, you know, one of the things I always remembered was the law of unintended consequences. And so by being so aggressive with those taxes across 
so many layers and with numbers that uh, were not sustainable. I don't know why the people who are tasked with making those decisions didn't understand that they were actually creating incentives for people to not be regulated instead of like, I love regulated cannabis because I'll change, I'll trade cops and robbers for the board of equalization and Cal OSHA. Like that's a better set of challenges. Like if you haven't been subject to asset forfeiture, don't tell me that it's a pain to pay your taxes or to have to conform with occupational safety standards. Cause I'll take those challenges any day. Right. Right. But, 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 how did they not know that by taking such a big bite that it wasn't going to work for the majority of the industry that already existed, right? And so it's like when we talk about regulated cannabis, we're not starting a new industry. We're creating a framework for an existing industry to bring it to and to create age-restricted and laboratory-tested safe products where if something breaks or you have a an issue, you can go back and return it. It's not a big deal. And where innovative form factors can come to market. And so like this taxes thing, it's really, really sad. Even on a state level, like, like Sonoma County, they were talking about raising the taxes. And I was like, like, walk me through that. I was, I was on a Sebastopol city council meeting and they're trying to cover a tax deficit. And they were talking about raising the taxes on cannabis. I'm like, why don't you raise the taxes on the hotels? Those people are tourists. They're not from around here anyway. These right. cannabis businesses actually employ local people who spend their paychecks in the local food stores, who take their significant others out to the local restaurants, who buy new vehicles from the local auto dealerships. Like, how do we not understand that the taxes are one of the biggest issues? And what the only thing I love about the the the, the, the the draconian taxes is that it's been a great place where there's no partisan uh, divide, right? Whether you're red, whether you're purple, whether you're blue, whether you're pro-Trump, whether you're pro-Biden, whether you're a liberal or a conservative, whether you're a, you know, a, a libertarian, nobody disagrees that the taxes are this massive issue. Right. And yet we've been talking about this for so long and I don't see the tax relief and those changes in tax structures reflecting what the industry is saying. And it's challenging for me because I was at I was in Washington DC last week. I had the pleasure of speaking at the International Cannabis Bar Association's continuing education event at George Washington University School of Law. It, it it was it was big. It was huge for me. You know, it wasn't a pay to play thing. I didn't have to buy a booth to speak. And I was on this legacy to legal panel and you know, I was talking to attorneys there and like you know, that's a pretty a pretty cerebral crowd and I just don't understand how there's not consensus that across America, you can't point to an industry that hasn't benefited from government subsidies, okay? Right. If you're a regular farmer, you can get credits. If you lose your crop of wheat, there's room for you. If you're a fisherman fishing salmon and California shuts the salmon season down, there is support for you. If you're Apple, you're allowed to offshore your corporation to Ireland and pay zero taxes. Why are we not upset that the Apple store in the Santa Rosa mall that's selling thousands of laptops and thousands of iPhones isn't paying their fair share of taxes? 
And then you've got this nascent regulated industry. And we're like, let's just suck them dry. Like where's our leeches and our ticks and let's just affix them to all of the cannabis entities that are regulated. But if I look at most industries along the way that have become sustainable and, and, and really relevant, you know, a lot of them have benefited from government support. And it doesn't mean that we're talking entitlement programs. It doesn't mean that I'm trying to nurse off the teat of, you know, government subsidies. But like, if I look at these industries across the board, they have gotten government support to be successful industries. If you look at a football team, well, let's look at your Raiders for a second. If you look at your Raiders, their choice to relocate their football team was in no small measure heavily influenced by the tax benefits of what venues really wanted them. And so when you're talking about football teams, it's like, well, what city is gonna give me a massive tax benefit to build a stadium? If you look at an automotive manufacturing plant, they're gonna say, well, what? who wants my business and what are you gonna give me to bring my business there? I can't think of a single industry that hasn't benefited from either tax breaks, tax benefits, subsidies, government support, and regulated cannabis is like a baby dolphin that just got thrown into the ocean and like, who's going to keep it floating so it can open its little blowhole and learn to swim and survive. And so instead, they took these taxes and they offered them to all of these other stakeholders, many who are outside of cannabis and said, you're going to get a piece and you're going to get a piece and you're going to get a piece. Many who are actively working against the cannabis industry. Thank but you. Love the money. And then even when the state of California has given money to cannabis programs in Los Angeles, that money got used to spend on police overtime. Yeah, It didn't even actually support the industry. I got another example. State of California is offering grant funding for local municipalities that have a social equity component to their cannabis programs. Hey, it's government money. You know what, because sometimes that's what government does really good. Maybe they don't always come up with the nuanced policy fix, but they can throw some money around. They can throw some, some resources and some support. So in Sonoma County, the county has applied for the social equity uh, funding. Santa Rosa has applied for the social equity funding. The head of the Katati Cannabis Program, I reached out to him because I'm on the board of the Sonoma County Cannabis Alliance. I reached out to him. I said, hey, let's talk about this social equity program because your city can get $75,000 just to study it and figure it out. And then you can apply for state money. And then that state money comes down and it is given as direct grant funds to your operators. And it is given for technical support and third party uh, advisement to make those other operators successful. Mm -hmm. This is not a unique model. This is not new to industry. This is just new to cannabis. I almost feel like taking my phone and playing you the voicemail from the guy who runs the program in Sonoma County in Katati for their social equity, uh, I mean, for their cannabis program. His voicemail to me said, well, we're going to wait and see how it works for Santa Rosa and Sonoma County. And, you know, none of our licensees are complaining about it. I was like, let me get this straight. There is money available. That money goes to the people who are in your region. And then some of it will get spent on CPAs and general contractors and compliance people, many of who will also live in your region. Mm -hmm. And you're telling me you're going to wait, even though these programs have been around for years. I mean, Los Angeles got 17 million like 
2021, just for the social equity portion of their cannabis programs, you're going to wait to see how it goes locally, even though it's validated and established in all these other markets. And because nobody has come and directly complained to you, you have zero sense of urgency. I called the guy back six or seven times. I said, let me meet with you. You know, I'm second generation in the space. I've lived in Sonoma County more than half of my life. I am on the board for Sonoma County Cannabis Loans. Like, which part of my curriculum vitae do you need to hear in order to take a meeting with me? I went to junior high five miles away. And after that, never called me back, never said he'd meet with me. Because you know what? Then he'd be confronted with the fact that there's money available and that he's not bringing home the bacon. It's simple pork belly politics. So it's just really challenging for me because there is some money available to support this industry and getting over the hump and incentivizing or encouraging or enrolling these municipalities to participate in the money that's available has been slow at best. And then I have these thought processes like, well, we'll just wait and see how it goes. And then in addition, there's I don't think we have consensus yet that industries need support from government that private enterprise doesn't operate in a vacuum right and that government support typically includes either tax breaks or subsidies and if we look at the volume of sales of regulated cannabis in a state and then look at the percentage of tax breaks or subsidies and we compare that to other industries what did we think was going to happen of course, there's a dumpster fire. Yeah, exactly. Well, and then, you know, we don't have the same tax deductions on a federal level as as other industries as well. And all of this really comes down to stigma, which turns into sin taxes, because that's what we're seeing. We're seeing massive taxation that is not taking into account. They're taking into account the substance that a lot of people still have a, see through a stigmatized lens, but they're not taking into consideration the fact that we're creating a viable industry that's creating generational wealth, which can only make our state stronger if they're successful, which brings in more ta taxable income. And that's that's really frustrating because they're just not supporting it. And and when we look at that, I mean, and that's why, like, when we, we go back to, say, the moratorium in San Francisco, I was just looking at the average hourly rate for somebody who works in cannabis. And it's really, really low. These $27.32. Oh, I was seeing a lot for 15 even. And that's oh. you can't you can't live in the town that you work for that amount. And if we, in San Francisco, avocado toast is $27.32. Right? So how many hours do you have to work to get your breakfast if you're in the mood for avocado toast? But it, that's <laughs> that's the thing. Like if we were able to be taxed like any other business, we would be able to offer higher wages and more professional development for people. And that's what's that's what creates strong communities, people who actually can live in their communities, that they can raise their kids and not worry about. It. I mean, when people say to me, oh, well, you know, you don't want to educate people who are working in the stores because the turnover is high. It's like, why do you think the turnover is high? A turnover is not high when people are adequately compensated and there's room for advancement. It doesn't matter what industry that is. And I remember talking to the unions and they were like, well, you know, we kind of don't have 
I'm not going to name the union or the person I talked to. They were very nice to me. I don't have any grind against them. I'm not even anti-union. Right. But he was like, well, you know, we're not really sure of our relationship with cannabis. You know, we're not being welcomed in. I said, well, let's talk about that. I said, you're not being welcomed in because even though you provide a benefit to the line staff, you're still an expense. You're still a cost. I said, if you want to be welcomed in, take that considerable political power of yours and help to reduce the taxes. And we got into like a which comes first, the chicken or the egg. Do they take their political power and help to lower taxes so there's room for the costs and benefit of organization or organized labor? Or do they wait, get brought in, and then that's like a, you know, post bringing us in will help to reduce the taxes. And this was, this conversation was with somebody who I met at that same conference where I met you and where, you know, we were having these conversations about what's that intersection of this industry and organized labor. I don't see them fighting for lowering the taxes and organized labor has focused solely on dispensaries. And I'm like, well, walk me through that because what about the farm labor like last i checked caesar chavez and like they, he, they named a street after him in san francisco eventually and a lot of that organized labor was focused in sonoma county where i live where frankly we are the birthplace of modern agriculture in the united states due to luther burbank and like the unions didn't focus on the entire supply chain they decided they were just going to focus on retail and i'm like if you're going to support an industry support the industry not the final portion of the supply chain and 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 so if they did that i I do believe that with the lowering of taxes there's more sustainable wages if there's not sustainable wages to your point we're still going to have turnover we're going to have underinformed bed tenders we're going to have people who are only young or newly starting off on their career path and you know that at the end of the day is going to create less consumers in a regulated brick and mortar market because they're not getting the level of support and assistance that they're used to when they, you know, if you, if you spend 80 bucks in, in Nordstrom's, you know, someone comes out and says, that's a nice looking pair of pants, or do you want that hemmed up for you? And there's like a little, you know, you get some like service. And 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 I don't think you get that when you have undertrained and undercompensated and high turnover staff. Right, right. No, a- absolutely. And I and I think also, and I'm going to preface this next comment with the fact that I come from a union strong family, and I believe in the unions. The unions kept my mother's side of the family safe when they worked in the mines. My mom was her shop steward. My dad was his shop steward. And so both my parents were also active in their unions. Yeah. And there's so we both understand the importance of it. And I totally appreciate and support my colleagues that that you know represent the unions and show up at the meetings but and I'll say and before legalization when we were reaching out to the unions to create relationships so that we could get better policy and be better protected they weren't interested they could have they could have set the foundation for a good relationship with the industry and in particular the dispensaries if they would have been open-minded about that. And the only thing that we got out of that was, I'm not even going to get into it, but that political mess you and I, yeah, that you and I both know about that the FBI got involved in where there was, there was some bribery and some things that were going on. And that was the only taste of working with a union 
that our industry had for quite some time. And and to, you know, like, I'm not unsympathetic to the experience of being uh, uh, somebody who's working in a dispensary. But I will also offer that the farming side is a bit more taxing on the person who's doing it. Absolutely. The of the time. And so the unions sidestepping the beginning of the supply chain, organizing labor that's in the field, sometimes needs to be out there more than eight hours in a day. What about heat stroke? What about dust? What about occupational safety? Like there was a place for the unions to work with the Sonoma County Growers Alliance, California Growers Alliance, all of these grower alliance, whether we're talking Grass Valley and the 530 or is it the 503 area code or talking Mendocino, there were all of these groups that sprung up to support cultivators. And I didn't see any like, hey, let's work together and figure out what that looks like so that we can support you and you can be brought into the fold of SEI Cape Worker 55672 or whatever these, you know, these the names of the, some of the unions are. And 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 they focused solely on retail. And and I never understood if you're going to care about an industry, why you would choose only one portion of the supply chain. And if you care about the industry and you and part of your value prop is your political influence, there's no place that political influence could be better expended than in lowering the taxes on an industry that was overtaxed right out of the gate and is suffering currently from that, you know, existing tax structure. Yeah. Absolutely. And and manufacturing as well, because as we've seen in the past year, there have been some really dangerous environments for workers to work in in manufacturing. We saw what happened to that woman in the East Coast who ended up having a lot of inhalation of keef and other things like, you know, there, there have been deaths in manufacturing because of poor controls with safety. The unions should be involved in that. The unions should also, they they want to work with apprenticeship programs and education, but I still haven't seen anything yet. And they're not necessarily looking at leaning on experts and people who actually understand what's going on to give these workers the tools that they need to succeed. We're still seeing a lot of cronyism and things like that. Like when I was the chair, well, one of the co-chairs of the legalization task force in San Francisco talking to uh, one of the union reps and, and actually a union rep was one of my co-chairs and I loved working with her. We got a lot of really great stuff done, but somebody who was above her, who she wanted me to talk to, cause she was like, cause there are some great people in the unions that really want to do amazing, wonderful things. But you have this out of touch, older leadership that doesn't necessarily understand that. And when I was introduced to somebody and saying, you know, She's an educator who's put together groundbreaking training that has made cultural differences with how a company is run and has actually been quite profitable because of that. It's like, oh, hey, girly. Yeah, nice to meet you. Maybe there's an administrative role. That's an outdated mode of thinking. And and we really need to like be looking at, you know, who who are we talking to? What is their base of knowledge? How can they help strengthen the industry? It doesn't need to be a huge money grab, but everybody is just so like, it, it's almost, I feel like in some ways it's like, let's get as much as we possibly can before this thing implodes. And it doesn't need to be like that. I, I, you know, I, 
I think there were a couple missteps in trying to get the support and benefit of organized labor structures, not just in terms of uh, a focus on the urban end of the supply chain and not a, a, you know as much focus on the agrarian beginnings, but also on the social equity conversations. There was a missed opportunity to have institutional uh, support from organized labor for the conversations around social equity and the fact that there were communities that were disproportionately impacted from prohibition and that there's an urban definition of that and there's an agrarian definition of that but that the helicopter flew over mendocino and compshi as much as it flew over compton and that you know there were people who were handcuffed on on city corners because they were retail and there were people who were handcuffed on the deck of their cabin because they were cultivation and that missed opportunity with organized labor you know i don't really put as much emphasis or, or blame or fault or you know sort of responsibility on the industry that was just trying to get its legs so much as i do on these institutions i went i went to washington dc last week i spoke right and like one of the things i did is i drove around with my little brother and we looked at all this beautiful architecture all these really cool institutions you know you know, the Red Cross building and the this building and the that building and the building for the embassy of Pakistan, or I don't know, there were just all of these institutions that had a presence in our in our nation's capital. And one of them was, you know, a union building, an organized labor building that was literally a block away from the White House. And I was like, you know, that's pretty cool real estate. That's prime. That's home field advantage to be able to have those policy conversations. Um, and 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 we didn't see that. And I, I frankly, I don't even see it happening in some of these emerging states as well. And so, not sure why. I think maybe it's because you know there's no juice left to squeeze to squeeze because of the taxes. And so they're like, well, I don't know. We're not gonna. We can't figure out how we're, you know what, how we work together. And 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 it's too bad, you know. And 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 meanwhile, as we see these new these new markets come on board, you know, I'm 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 glad to see some of the social equity stuff getting front loaded. Um, I'm, you know, I'm glad to see that, you know, there's this notion that, hey, new industries sometimes need subsidies or tax breaks or, or yeah. grant funding. But I'm also, you know, frustrated because I look at New York and it's like as much opportunity as it possesses. There's yet another case study for what was rolled out in a way that like either the vision wasn't right or the execution wasn't right or some combination of both. You know, initially I saw that they were going to put up, I think it was like a hundred million dollars to help support retail. And again, you know, this refrain of our of our podcast webinar today is, you know, I, I can't help myself in saying, here's a problem. And so they were talking about $100 million towards retail. And like, let's just give them a report card. How much of that money has been deployed? How much of that money has been raised? What are the terms for receiving that money? And those are simple questions and we don't have simple answers. And so here you've got this promise of opportunity for constituents who are most impacted by prohibition and the promise of opportunity doesn't include enough details and people are trying to get a first mover advantage. And are we are we creating the environment where people have a chance of being successful or are we going to create a lot of people who either borrowed money, leveraged the house, uh, you know, took their life savings, took investors money and then, you know, gambled that the, that the regulations and the supply chain and, and all the rules were going to support those businesses. Um, and, and, you know, certainly with the, with the, with the hundred million that was going to go into New York, like, no, I, I'm sorry to be that Monday morning quarterback or to throw darts from the West coast, but like, 
y'all should have talked to the right people and figured this out because the the knowledge that was necessary to not be in this situation right now wasn't impossible to to get right it wasn't impossible you, you talked to some people maybe you didn't talk to the right people or maybe you didn't talk to the broadest spectrum of stakeholders and now you have problems that we could see were very likely to occur yes we we're, we're running a retail in, in new york you know, as a commercial real estate development company, and we we had a director of compliance, which isn't even my lane, and her trying to figure out what was going to work and what wasn't going to work, and like what you know, what are the rules and regs? Like, it's like if you're gonna if you're gonna do it, really talk to the people who have you know created some successes and experienced pain points, and then make iterations, not just you know replicating. So yeah, yeah. I'm excited, but I'm also like, oh, I know. It, it is exciting, but it's also, you know, with that, you know, there's also the real reality of how much is it going to cost to run these programs? Like, what are the base costs for having a staff working for, you know, your local municipality or the state running these programs? How much of that comes out of that $100 million? So how, what's left to actually support these existing programs? Well, those $100 million was intended to be grants to social equity retailers. And it was going to be, you know, the first the state was going to assign them real estate. And I'm like, well, how does that work? Because not all real estate has the same benefits and attributes, especially when you look at retail from a CPG lens, traffic count, parking, yada, yada, yada. And, and and how much of that was going to go into tenant improvements on properties that the retailers didn't own. And, you know, even now the retail, like these people who are trying to stand up, they're like, well, what are my costs going to be for these renovations? Like if you're going into normal construction, you get a couple bids from a couple competing people and you let capitalism and, you know, reputation and costs and all of those things become determinants. And so this whole thing was kind of foisted on them half-baked at best. And, 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 and I worry about that. I worry about the, the states that come online and replicating the mistakes, right? Because then it's just Groundhog's Day. And we have enough pain points. We can look in the rearview mirror of regulated cannabis, especially in the more established markets like Oregon, Colorado, California. And we can say, hey, here's the changes that we suggest. I was in Washington, D.C. last week, and when I was speaking on this legacy to legal panel, I was speaking with this amazing woman who is one of the main regulators in Colorado, and I want to like pull up my phone and mention her by name. And I'm not going to be able to because it's going to be this weird, awkward moment in the interview. I was really impressed by her. And she was in charge of revenue enforcement. She's, I believe, an attorney, um, very articulate, right? She's been involved in the Colorado Cannabis Program for a really, really long time. Now I'm feeling terrible that I don't pull up her name. But anyway, I was like really impressed by her. And she made a statement on our panel that like pained me because it to me indicated how glacial the pace of evolution has been to some degree when it comes to both regulations and the culture of regulators for this industry. And she said, you know, Colorado's had a program for whatever it was, seven, eight years. And I'm the first person in my position who doesn't carry a gun on their waist. And I was like, just let that sink in for a second. Yeah. Like, first of all, if you're the top of a department, you're not like in the field. You're not repelling into anything. 
you're, you're probably mostly a desk jockey, no disrespect. And secondly, when we look at enforcement of illegal business through the through the antiquated lens of prohibition, where we look at enforcement through a law enforcement lens instead of like a Cal OSHA lens or a Bureau of Equalization lens, and y'all are armed, how do you expect to enroll the unregulated operators? You're carrying a gun. You, last I checked, that's a little bit intimidating at best. And right. so it was really, really like this moment where I was just like, ow, and I'm glad that she's not carrying a firearm. And I believe she probably does a better job without it. And I think that it, you know, it shows that there's cultural evolution in the way in which government supports this industry. But for her to be the first one that doesn't carry a sidearm in her position in a mature market means we have a long ways to go. Yeah, it does. Because when we were looking at legalization, the contemplation of it was making it so that the police, law enforcement could actually concentrate on other issues. And that was one of the things, you know, when I've been in committee, um, there was a police officer, he was a captain, and he was saying, you know, we are, we are bound to uphold the law, make better laws for us to uphold. And the fact that in California, where legalization was supposed to reduce some of the weight on law enforcement's shoulders, and the fact that they're still getting an infusion of cash from our taxes is really troubling because it's not to say that we don't have to support law enforcement. Of course we do. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. But that's something that should be done th throughout all the industries. And, and when, it, when somebody in law enforcement says make better laws, what I hear is I don't want to have any responsibility currently for the outcomes in the way that I enforce the current laws. Like, that's what I hear. I hear the foist, to quote Larry David from Curb Your Enthusiasm. Uh, if they made better laws, I would do a better job. Right. You know, we've got, we've got enforcement where the people who are enforcing a civil infraction, the uniforms have changed. Now they're part of fish and wild, fish and game, or they're part of, you know, checking on water diversion, but the people who are in those uniforms, what is their history? What is their training? The vast majority of them do come from law enforcement mm -hmm. and yet not every Creek diversion is a tactical situation. And so why are we not having geologists and agronomists and people with a farming background or people with a Cal OSHA background? You know, code enforcement, if you were, when we think in broader terms, what would be the qualifications for a great code enforcement officer? The layperson would say, well, somebody with a construction background or somebody with an engineering background, not somebody who spent 20 years kicking down doors, right? right. And, and look, I, I love cops. Cops are like lawyers. Or firefighters, you no one appreciates them until you need one, right? So, like, I am not suggesting that 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 there isn't a noble and and required place for law enforcement in society. Absolutely, but enforcement against unregulated cannabis has increased in California, and I'm like, well, okay, so let me get this straight: y'all tax the heck out of it, alienated a lot of the existing operators through high costs, high taxes, slow permitting 
too much taxes instead of lower taxes and a you know a, a bigger tent. And now you're going to spend some of those taxes enforcing against cultivation. I'm like, don't we have like X number of decades of prohibition in our rearview mirror to see the limitations of that mindset and what that's actually going to create, you know? And so like, I, I, I'm, I'm just absolutely floored that we're still hacking down plants and kicking like, look, it is true that the unregulated industry has provided a fertile nest for slave labor, sexploitation, uh, you know, unprotected, uh, you know, immigrants or trimigrants. I'm not going to say like, it's all good. Oh, and absolutely. You're, you're massive, right on. Yeah. Massive environmental harms, right? Yeah. Massive environmental harms. So like, yeah, there's some need to like keep people safe and keep forests sustainable and not just, you know, let silt and runoff ruin, you know, the, 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 the breeding grounds for, you know, our endangered salmon. So I'm not suggesting that we should have zero rules or zero enforcement, but who's enforcing and what do they look like and what's their background and what's the corporate culture that they bring into that new assignment, even if their uniform has changed. Right. Right. And are we, I, I just think that there are other ways to fix this without spending all that money and also continuing that cycle of trauma that people, and, and, you know, I know there'll be people out there listening going, oh, well, you know, if they're in an unregulated market, they've kind of asked for it. But the fact of the matter is, if we were better with our taxation, not only would there be less people participating in the unregulated market. So we wouldn't be perpetuating the cycle of trauma. There would be less money having to be put into the police support around that. And the state in the end would actually be making money because like we mentioned before, if you have greater accessibility to product through price, meaning less taxation, you have consumers purchasing more from stores because everybody really when you think about it, unless you're like somebody who's like, oh, I've just got to go out there and put myself at risk with everything. I'm not going to go to the grocery store to buy tomatoes. I'm going to jump my neighbor's fence and grab it. I mean, if you're that kind of person, you're always going to buy illicit cannabis. I mean, you know. Nobody, nobody ever goes, where's the good bathtub gin? No, you know, that, that's it. They just and get some Hendrix because it's accessible and it's risk-free. And then they go make their martini or their G&T because... We don't need an illicit market. An illicit market is a byproduct of prohibition, not the other way around. Exactly. And we learned the alcohol model. We learned that prohibition of alcohol didn't work. It and didn't what it work. Created, it created gangsters with Tommy guns in Chicago. Right. Right. That's it. And that's that's and that's a lesson that we're we're starting to to learn. We learn over and over again. And I don't know why it just doesn't come through. Lower the damn taxes. You'll make way more money than you are now. Way more money. Way more money. And you know what's what's that what's that uh, silly cliche? Pigs get fed and hogs get slaughtered. And so I think about that in terms of the taxes. Right? Take less. Have a bigger market. You'll earn more and lower those lower those taxes. And I, you know when I think about those barriers, it's not just the taxes. It's also the time it takes to get a permit. I think yeah. the only thing harder than getting a cannabis permit is getting a permit for like a nuclear power plant. Yeah, well, and 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 this now 
And then the real estate issue with those permits, like with people having to pay for real estate that they're not even making any money on while they're waiting to get okayed. And from a social equity standpoint, like when I am in those subcommittee meetings, I feel people's pain because they, because of the lack of financing for things like that, people are losing their life savings, paying for a space that may never make money for them. I say often, and it's because my lens is clearly biased. You know, I've been in real estate for 22 years, uh, 10, 11, 12 as a licensed realtor, you know, a couple of years in real estate finance as a mortgage broker. And then the last seven years as land use consultant, unlicensed assistant, and then marketing manager for a team at here in Sonoma County. And so, you know, and that's after 20 units of real estate in college. So Clearly, I am biased. Clearly, I have a lens, and clearly, I'm in love with my own opinion. But all that disclaimer said, <laughs> yeah, I love there you, Yara. Is no <laughs> cannabis industry. There is real estate that happens to be a niche of real estate that happens to include regulated cannabis. There, with the exception of a special event, with the exception of intellectual property, ag tech, vape tech, extraction tech, and with the exception of brands. There's not a cannabis industry. There's real estate because there's not a single permit that travels. You need an APN number or a tax ID number and you need a zoning before you can ever get permission to have a cannabis business. And so it's not, you know, cannabis, regulated cannabis is real estate first. It's real estate at its core. And it's, 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 it will likely stay that way for a very long time. And, and real estate for someone like myself, is muscle memory for most people you know i was i was on a podcast with barrington uh and 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 and, and richard uh acosta of, of inception re for uh for vincente uh the law firm oh vincente cedarberg yeah yeah and we did this great one on social equity and 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 cannabis real estate and 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 I was like, yeah, zoning code's not that big of a deal. Don't ever go look at a piece of property until you know whether the zoning is going to work. Like save your time in the field and spend a little time on the internet and make sure the zoning works. And, and he was like, for you, that's easy. But for some people, they're looking at a gobbledygook of letters and they're like, what does this mean? Right. But but it's really at its core, it's real estate first. And the, the amount of time and money that is expended by people that are not real estate fluent uh, because they don't understand that foundationally that's the beginning uh it, it's it, it's sad to me you know people will say to me let me tell you my vision and i'm like don't bother just tell me your zoning and i'll tell you the limitations of your vision oh i want to do a hotel that has a glass wall to an extraction facility so people can see the extracts being made and there i want to have a commercial kitchen with a restaurant that'll be a consumption lounge and i'm like that's never going to happen because there's not a single zoning currently that's going to allow for a hotel extraction, retail and manufacturing all in one. So like just your vision is great. And that's a 3.0, 4.0 iteration. But currently zoning is the limiting factor and mm -hmm. the number of people who don't get that. And then to your point, when, when the time it takes to get a permit is so long, very few landlords are going to take a, you know, a no compensation model while they're waiting to fill a commercial space while somebody is running out of permit and still has the uncertainty of whether they're going to get those permits. And it creates a massive barrier to entry, which then means that people have to raise more money and they're burdened by that. So yes, it's the taxes, but it's also like, 
How do we make that entry into the industry uh, more affordable, more attainable? It's certainly not going to be by sacrificing on things like product safety, occupational safety. You know, there's certain linchpins that like are non-negotiables, but the real estate and having to have the site and have secure or control over that site or the ability to control that site and then having to wait a really, really, really long time is super expensive. And I think there's a lot of room for improvement. Yeah, there definitely is. And the way it's structured also gives way for people to have predatory practices. Say you have somebody who's leasing to you so you can get your permit, but they're betting that you're never going to get it. So they're collecting rent. And once you do, they change their minds. And I know this has happened because I, I, I have stories that I cannot, due to NDAs that I have, I cannot disclose. But these things are happening. Or the fact that your facility is in a green zone that happens to not be a very safe place to be. I mean, we have so many companies now that are actually stopping their business because they've gotten ripped off so many times because of where they are. These are problematic or just the fact that of the way that some of these businesses are listed in databases. So it's accessible for people who are actually looking to, you know, to rob, to break in and rob these businesses. It's a safety issue, too. So how about green zone tends to be code for eh, eh. like if if real estate was the monopoly board, do we think for most people that the green zone is going to include Park Place? For Marvin Gardens, no, it's usually that first Oriental Oriental Avenue and and those those ones on the first first part of the board. And like even yeah. when I look at like retail being allowed in Sausalito and that being a thing and that's exciting. And Sausalito is a pretty affluent market. They're like, except not on the not on the the part where you know it's by the water. Oh, the I'm nimbyism like, is crazy. What what do people go to Sausalito for? They go to get a nice meal. They go to be on the water. So if you're telling me the dispensary can't be in the main tourist corridor, you're building in that same stigma that we say we're trying to get rid of and that we're not really participating in. And you're relegating those businesses to less viable commercial locations. And the other thing I've seen with the sort of way in which these these areas are 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 permitted or allowed is it creates these bubbles of real estate. And those bubbles of real estate creates create upward uh, influence on the prices that people would pay either for purchase or for lease. And it's great for those e- existing property owners. It's really good. Like, I- I'm just going to say that like when cannabis rolls into your market or your town or your state, and if you own commercial property that is permit eligible, congratulations, because you just won the lottery because you have a once in a lifetime end of prohibition where highest and best use for your commercial property has changed. And if you don't take advantage of it, you're a darn fool because there's a limited window of X number of years while there's frothy exuberance for new markets. And I, (laughs) under my previous job as a director of real estate for Devin 18 months, me and the development leads made a lot of property owners very rich. Now, those people weren't necessarily in the industry, but it still props up those economies, those people still take that money and spend it in their in their in their places. But if those areas were not as restrictive, there would be more options for locations. There would be less cost to get in, and I think ultimately would support the industry more broadly because those real estate pockets have created very very expensive issues in in Sonoma County. There was about five agricultural zonings. 
L-E-A, L-I-A, D-A, R-R-D, and I forget, but like L-E-A and L-I-A standard stood for land intensive agriculture or land extensive agriculture. And basically what it meant was that the county had deemed that highest and best use for those locations is commercial ag, right? But they didn't allow people to be cottage cultivators in rural residential. So anybody who was just kind of a small timer or a live work situation was, there was no path for them, right? And I'm not saying there should be a pot patch across the backyard of, you know, you know, residential neighborhoods in a way that impacts, you know, those neighborhoods or brings property values down. And, and, and I have kids, I get it. Um, but by putting it into that LEA and LIA, they created this massive bubble because of the scarcity of those properties coupled with the setback requirements, coupled with the water requirements, and they created a real estate bubble. And some people benefited from that, but certainly the people trying to get in who weren't already on properties with the appropriate zonings, it created a massive extra hurdle that I don't think needed to be there. And, and when we see these green zones, you know, especially for retail, to your point, they're not always as inclusive as they could be in a way that would allow, say, brick and mortar dispensaries to just be another shop. Right. You know, and, and, and I think that, you know, I'll use Sausalito again as an example. Like, I don't see some kid from the city in a cookies hoodie going to Sausalito for the next drop of pre-rolls. I think the people who would buy cannabis in Sausalito are either there because they're tourists or they're there because they live in the area and they just want affordable, easy access. And if you look at like a city like Sausalito and all the little like, uh, you know, or Tiburon, all the little streets that go up into the hills, like I don't really want delivery vehicles clogging up all those hills. We already got enough Amazon delivery vehicles. And so having a brick and mortar outlet where people can come or they could deal with a product issue or they could just talk to somebody is really, really valuable. And if you say not in the waterway and not in the commercial corridor, or we're only going to put you in this teeny little pocket or there's the armpit of the map, you get to live there. <laughs> I don't see how that really supports the industry. But then these cities get to say, well, we let retail in our place. It's like, but how did you let retail in and what were the rules and how restrictive were you really? Well, that's it, because there's this constant fear of, you know, like, look what's happened to the neighborhood. But if we I mean, if we have community agreements, especially around retail, about how things are going to go and how they're going to enrich the neighborhood rather than create issues, it can change a lot of things for the better. I mean, you're right. Sausalito, it's not going to be the latest drop of, you know, whatever pre-roll or whatever, you know, bomb wax is out there right now. But, you know, of course, I'm I'm a I'm a full melt hash sort of girl myself. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's going to be more of like your your gummies and your topicals and probably some really close like CBD to THC ratios in your flowers because people are like, yeah, I want to smoke what I used to smoke, not this crazy stuff that you kids are doing now. Yeah, give me a 9%. Yeah, exactly. You know, you get your dad weed going on. But it's, you know, like the dispensary that I used to work for, every block that we opened a store was a block that was enriched with our presence because we kept an eye on the block. It stayed, you know, well lit. It was clean. We did things as part of the neighborhood association. And if you can encourage people who are looking for retail situations 
to be good players and create the foundation for that, that if you, there are these community agreements and this is how you have to show up to do this. Because I have, you know, as much as I'd like to say that every person in cannabis is a conscientious member of our community and is a good player, we're human beings. Not everybody's yeah, the same. Yeah, that's an optimistic assessment. It's right? a, people are people. It's a very optimistic assessment. But if you lay the groundwork from the word go then we can have nice things. I mean, that's one of the biggest things. Like when I used to have, you know, cannabis, cannabis gatherings, and I would be looking for a venue and people would be like, oh, I don't want to deal with that. Oh, I don't want to deal with that. Oh, I don't want to deal with that. And then I'd find somebody who would reluctantly be like, okay, you can rent my space for this private party. And afterwards, they'd be like, oh my God, this was amazing. My bathroom isn't trashed. No one threw up. Everyone behaved. There were no fights. And I mean, you know, I'm an adult, so I would certainly hope that a, a gathering that I put together didn't have any of those things. I've never had that happen. But, but people are people. But people are people. And and I, you know, I, I, I set up the groundwork for that. And there was, you know, and, and there was no alcohol involved. Well, you know, it's interesting, right? Because, you know, alcohol creates a lot of problems, but coming from a an area that has benefited uh, a lot because of our alcohol industry, both in terms of the viewscape and the draw for tourism, as well as just the quality wines that we produce. Oh, and I love uh, wine. Don't get me wrong. Wine culture is I, a beautiful thing. I mean, I'm just so happy that we, that our vineyard industry, you know, that we, are you know a place that people go to enjoy our 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 wine and what worries me most specifically about Sonoma County is as the next iteration of retail sort of uh unfolds with consumption lounges I think about the wine tasting you know when my family's right hey take us to some place to go wine tasting right you never go wine tasting to try wine from Chile or Argentina or Australia. You come to Sonoma County to drink Sonoma County wines. Nobody's like, hey, what you got that's not from around here? And right. so it worries me that by the time consumption lounges are allowed in Sonoma County, will there be enough locally produced cannabis to support consumption lounges with locally produced products? Because no one's going to say, what do you got from Adelanto? Yeah. Tell me what you're working with from Santa Barbara. No, they're going to want to consume things that are local. And I, I think, you know, we're not we're not seeing a lot of support in terms of the tax structure and speeding up the, the permitting process to allow our current and future production to match what I think is, a you know, going to be a, a future local consumption lounge amount. And, and you know, and I, and, I, and I look at like the permitting process in Mendocino, like Mendocino really 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 did not a great job in allowing local operators and 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 in having such a restrictive production paradigm that anybody who wanted to really produce enough to 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 create a successful business well, was likely going to consider the county due east which was lake county and the difference between those allowances and what could be done there was exponential it wasn't a percentage it was a multiplier so mendocino you could do 10,000 square feet per parcel and in lake county you could do one acre per 20 acres. And if you had an adjacent parcel, you could use that parcel size to qualify for an, an even bigger canopy. So like separate from like, are we making too much and da, 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 da. Like I look at those differences and like Mendocino to me is 
the epicenter of the Emerald Triangle. I mean, some people might want to disagree with me and say, ah, it's Humboldt, Kubrin, or ah, what about Trinity? Again, my biases, having grown up and spent a lot of my formative years in Willits and Ukiah, and like, I mean, you know, Mendocino to me is like really the triangle. And yet they literally had to go under receivership by the state regulatory agency because they weren't even processing the permits. Like you can't, like, like we could just take that and dissect it the whole time and say, let us show you how to decimate an industry. Let us show you how to scare all the talent away. And let us show you how to create a framework that doesn't serve any of the constituents. And now let's look at what's happening in the economy there and let us show you how we can do, we can do harm to that as well. And, and so, you know, I, I think the greatest contribution that California, uh, California operators, California cannabis consultants, California advisors, the people who have innovated in California, I think our greatest contribution on the world stage and nationally is the ability to look back on all of that and say, well, let us show you what we think you can avoid. And here's why. Pain is an excellent teacher. Yes. Unfortunately, I managed to find a way to create a little bit more of that in my life and some of my previous choices than I probably could have, would have, should have, but it was a great teacher. And so the pain of watching these industries evolve, mature, degrade, implode, iterate, like that is such a body of knowledge that I, I, I totally encourage people from outside of California to recognize the talent and the experience and the value that they can get from reaching out to people who have experienced in more mature markets and the largest cannabis economy in the world. Yeah, I mean, change and wisdom don't come when we're comfortable. That's, it's, you know, and we've been dealing with that. And and as a result, like one thing I think about, like when we've gone into legalization, much like where you were talking about, you know, in Sonoma, being able to have tasting rooms with regional wines We've lost a lot of our, a lot of the really precious genetics and artisan farmers. Like there are things that I remember from the medicinal days that you can't even find now because there's no room for these people to have sustainable businesses. And that's huge. But luckily, with the help of government support and that $2.7 million grant and the work that's being done, I think, is it at Humboldt State as well as the gals over at what's the name of their company? Is it Leafworks in Sebastopol? Rachel Kuntz? I don't know. I'm probably butchering her name. I'm probably butchering the name of her company, but they are doing the genetic research and they are starting to create a repository of the data and the information that has made this region so relevant in the past. And like that company is based in Sebastopol where I live. And like those ladies are rock stars. I mean, it's not just that I'm impressed because you know the camera loves them and they're phd'd and they are a like you know just a powerhouse of of people who understand agronomy and plant science and 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 it, it's exciting to see that some of that work is finally happening the article that i read recently about them was also interesting for me um you know somebody was quoted a gentleman who was a professor at sonoma state whose name was bill silver I like the guy. I got nothing against him. I, I think he's talented. He initially came into the space working at Cannacraft. But they uh, identified as a, him as an expert. And and I just, that was a little bit of a nails on chalkboard moment for me, because even though that gentleman is definitely successful and has had some history in the space and obviously was, was successful before he got here, 
I'm sorry, but if you've been in the space for like five years or less, like you're not an expert. No. And you're a quick learner. Yeah. Expertise doesn't come without time. It's like if you got out of school and you were 27 years old and you had a PhD and an MBA and a lot of knowledge, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have the ability to have real world application. And so the local North Bay Business Journal was quoting Bill Silver as an expert in cannabis. And I was like, no, that gal, Rachel, with the PhD, who's doing the genetic work, she's an expert. Right. And Bill is an expert in business and a professor who has some notable cannabis experience. But like five years of anything is never going to be an expert in any industry. And it's unfortunate that this industry, because of how nascent it is, you know, people are getting accolades for having been in the space for more than a minute. And I'm not trying to take away from their successes, but no, here's no, you're, you're a sophomore. That's, that's, what you are. that's the reality. I mean, this past year, I finally got my, my subject matter expert seal of approval. And that made me uncomfortable. And I've been doing this for over a decade because I also know that, yeah, I know a lot about certain things, but I, there is a, we all have a lot to learn, but I also think that some of that, and, and I say this with the utmost of appreciation for my male colleagues. Um, but there is a lot of patriarchal stuff going on in our industry where, Though women have a place, it takes a lot more for us to be looked at as industry experts because you see people who have been in this industry for all of two minutes putting out their shingle as an expert. And a lot of times, not all, but a lot of times it's the dudes. So legacy cannabis was as diverse as regulated cannabis needs to be. Yes. Legacy cannabis was black and brown people, gay people, women. Like it was all the things that are missing. What's challenging for me is that this has been a known pain point in regulated cannabis for as long as we've had regulated cannabis. And I see a lot of women doing a good job of talking about the problem and amplifying awareness about the problem. But guess what? The statistics show that regulated cannabis has become less diverse with yes. less women leaders and less women in positions of responsibility and, and 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 opportunity. And yet next week, there'll be another women in cannabis conference. And I'm like, why is it that there is this disconnect? Because there seems to be this inversely proportional relationship. We keep talking about the problem and raising awareness, but I can't see that there's a connection between that and the statistics that show representation in 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 you know in positions of leadership for women. And like I'm like, if I hear about another women in, in, in cannabis conference, like I'm I'm sorry, I'm not feeling it because the raising of awareness hasn't proven to create better outcomes for women in cannabis. And so like my mom was a cannabis cultivator. I earned my first dollar trimming for my mom 39 years ago. I might have D'Angelo beat in terms of history in the space, albeit he's got better hair than me and 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 I'm not taking away from, you know. And he's got some uh, cool hats. 
You cannot discount those hot hats. No, and Harborside was at the front of the pack when it comes to West Coast dispensaries. Although I wonder why D'Angelo got a lot of the attention and dress behind the scenes, not so much because Harborside was founded by more than one person and more than one family. But that being said, I got love. You know, Andrew wrote me a letter when I was trying to get my my permit in the OC. But anyway, 39 years ago. But the person who I got that instruction from was a woman, right? right? And like now. Like there's, there's like, if you want to support women in cannabis, there's only two things you got to do, hire them and promote them. And when I say promote them, that means pay them and cover the 30 cent wage gap because raising awareness is not the same as breaking someone off and giving them good money for doing a good job. Like we can talk around the, the primary issue, raise raise you know make sure that the pay is the same and elevate them and you know i was working again i've been in uh regulated cannabis the the the, the you know uh for for seven or eight years without um without uh, having a, a w-2 job i was kind of a behind the scenes consultant and i just finished up this 18 month stint at, at you know at, at candev uh, as the director of real estate but you know what even though that company was founded by two dudes two white dudes I was like really happy that like when it came to their director positions, they hired women. Yeah. Like, oh, hey, our secretary is a chick, but like their director of compliance was a badass, super qualified woman who got hired based purely on meritocracy and was in a position to run a division. And it's like, if we wanna, if we wanna support women and 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 diversity in cannabis. It's pretty obvious how we do that. It's reflected in our hiring practices and it is reflected in pay. Yes, exactly. Hiring practices, pay. And for those of you who are listening out there who are female, when you reach out to other women in the industry, we support each other, but we also pay each other or at least work together in ways that's mutually beneficial. These are the things that we need to do to create strength. And I, you know, and that being said, it's like I love working with everybody. Like I I've I work with, you know, wonderful people no matter who they identify as in this industry. But the fact of the matter is there are a lot of people who are marginalized that we need to uplift and support. And that's super important for having a really well-balanced industry with thoughtful products good policy, safe and happy workers. And we really need to get our shit together. Well, and I just think about it from a talent perspective. Like, what would it have been like if a female Shakespeare had had the opportunity to be a scribe? Right. right? Like, how many talented philosophers in Greece had the wrong anatomy and weren't able to create contributions to the way humanity has thought right right you know, we we know that men weren't the only talented people they had the opportunity right right and so like i just want to make sure that the female shakespeare gets to write her play too right and so like i just think about it from a purely business perspective right i recognize that there's as much talent in women as there is in men and i want a business that benefits from that talent right and i'm not gonna that's all. I just want the talent. And I know that there's a lot of talent and there's also talent in these legacy communities, right? Mm-hmm. Communities were, um, that were disproportionately impacted by prohibition. Typically those communities were communities of color, brown and black, but they were also communities of poverty, but there's talent in there. And like, 
go find the little gold nuggets and go panning in those communities because you're going to find people who are more familiar with the plant, who understand it, who understand moisture loss, who understand humid relative humidity, who understand the need for variation, both in terms of form factors and flavors. And you're going to get all of this stuff. And yeah, sure, you could train people and that's great. And everybody needs to be trained. And ultimately people's work is often a byproduct of the support and training that they receive. But there's a lot of talent in those communities that I think is being overlooked or, you know, they'll put one black woman in a position as the head of diversity. But then you look at the workforce and it's like, oh, OK, you gave your company a figurehead. Well, great. But what did you do and what is the makeup of the rest of your uh, your staff? And does your staff look like the people that they're serving in those communities where these businesses are being run? Because ultimately that, I think, is a really great metric like does your staff reflect what the the community looks like? If it does, I think you're doing a good job. If it doesn't, eh. right. And then the other thing also is like, if you're talking about it instead of doing it, like, I think there's a fine line. Like I'm, I'm learning, you know, that we need to be a little bit in the self-promotion mode and certainly making content with people like yourself is, it, it's not a bad way for me to do that. But like, if you're constantly talking about, you know, the women and the minorities that you're hiring, like, I just think- we're at a place where you just got to be about it, not necessarily talk about it. Yes. Where like the only thing that matters to me is like, is the pay the same and is the opportunity for advancement the same? And if that's the case, great. But if you're doing another press release around it. <sighs> yeah, we we need to, we need to step away from the performative. I mean, it's, we even see this like, you know, re- even though when this episode is, launched it's not going to be june but right now we're in june and we're in pride season and we're seeing a lot of performative support around the lbgtq community and it's the same thing with the support of other communities as well it's like this is we've got to get off this our performative platforms and actually just do the work pride month has become like black friday like it's literally become a shopping opportunity. I was in Washington DC for Pride Month and it was uh, for 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 you know a couple of weeks ago and and they had like it it felt super commercialized and like I'm not against commerce no. but it was like is this an opportunity to sell teeny little rainbow flags or are we actually going to just spend a moment and remember that everyone is created equal that we all have the same set of rights and that this is the greatest country in the world for only two reasons, the ability to dissent, the ability to criticize so that we can be a better country tomorrow than we were before, right? That it's the evolution of American society that makes America incredible, but that we can still feel sad about our painful histories and have our feeling sad about those painful histories actually be the most patriotic thing because it motivates us to do better in the future, right? Like originally, it wasn't all people were created equal. It was actually all men. And it actually wasn't all men. It was actually all white men. So like, as we peel that apart, like there is a, a process of societal evolution in America that makes me, and I shouldn't say America, United States of America, that makes me super proud. But that in that super proudness, I go, ooh, women couldn't vote. And then I go, ooh, wait, black people had to be on a different bus. And then right. I go, ooh, wait, like, gay people couldn't visit their partner in a hospital because there was no path for them to be domestic partners. And then I go, ooh, wait, we were still locking people up for cannabis. And so 
Each of those things, as it shifts and changes and it evolves, it makes me proud of the change in this country. It makes me proud of the dissent that is the most patriotic thing. And I still know that we've got some chapters where it's like, uh, yeah, that didn't age very well, right? So like the Mayan Indians used to do human sacrifices. And like, would we do that to get closer to God anymore? We're like, no, that didn't age very well, right? And so, you know, I look at this and I'm like, okay, we're going to do better because we have some room to go. Mm-hmm. But in the criticizing, it's because I love where we're at and, you know, dissent is patriotic. But in this industry, you know, it's one thing to hire, a, uh, you know, a person of color or a female to lead your diversity and inclusion division. And that's better than a kick in the teeth. But until leadership in all of these companies looks like this country and especially the communities that pioneered this industry yeah no not good enough not even close not even close i god i really have enjoyed our conversation today it's i'm glad to have i'm glad to have you as a colleague on my side thinking about these things i mean we just we have a, we have a, and I, I think I must say this every episode. We have a lot of work to do. We, ha- we have a lot of things that we need to change, and we have a lot of really good people that are up to the task. We just need to work together and really combine our our energy to make this a better environment to work in, but in turn turn towards the macro and make the world a better, safer, more abundant place for us all to reside. I mean, you can call me a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. And the (laughs) thing that I like the most about regulated cannabis is this idealistic and and, 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 uh, idealistic and and, uh, notion that I'm not going to get rid of. And this optimism that I have that as a newly regulated industry, it can be a vehicle for societal change and we will fail at that exercise but if we fail forward and we still make a net positive impact not just on regulated cannabis but on society by being idealistic and by expecting that business can be an extension of values i am so excited about all the extra work that we still have to do to fail forward in that regard and i think that it's the one place where the idealism of this nascent industry is infectious in a way that's good and yeah. I'm, I love it. I love it. Like, how do we reinvigorate economies? How do we reinvigorate our industrial neighborhoods? If we're not making, you know, widgets over there, can we can we grow three tiers of cannabis in that old warehouse? It's already got a lot of power going to it. And right. so I think that cannabis still holds a lot of promise in terms of economic opportunity, revitalizing neighborhoods, job force redevelopment, and, you know, back to the diversity, you know, equity and inclusion uh, aspect, you know, uh, I mean, just, I mean, look at someone like Jamie Pearson, you know, previous, you know, leader of bang, like that's a, just a great example of like, you know, there are women kicking ass when given the opportunity or when they make that opportunity. You know, I remember I showed a deck to Jeannie Sullivan for the distribution and retail location in San Francisco that I was affiliated with. And she wrote back, why are there no women in the deck? And at first I was upset, like Jeannie, I'm trying to send you this deck. I, I I don't know anything about raising money. And and I was upset because I didn't want to tokenize women by putting them in false positions that didn't include an employment opportunity, main, merely to, to, to provide the optics of inclusion. But then I realized I needed to recalibrate myself. 
because I was lucky that Jeannie went 17 pages deep in the deck to see who the team was and that she's continuing to have the messaging and to remind this man, hey, Kubrin, I know you're an ally, but let's make sure we continue to level up in what that looks like and how that's actually executed. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 super important. And I think it's also super important for people to understand that, you know, women are business minded too. We just see the lens of business differently a lot of times than our male counterparts. And that's not a right or wrong thing. It's a different thing and it enriches it. Because, you know, when we look at studies of female leadership, we see that there is a, and there are some amazing male leaders out there too, but the employee's feeling of safety and also feeling fulfilled in their work, the culture is very different when it's seen through the female gaze. And that in turn, even though like a lot of my a lot of my male counterparts will be like, you know, well, what's the ROI? What's the ROI? And it's like, yes, the ROI, but look at the long game. Look at the sustainability. Like, let's just not make money cut and run. Let's create businesses and communities that endure and serve. And, you know, maybe you're not making like the kind of money that you would if you were running lean and mean. But where are you going to be in 20 years? And what's the impact on the community? ROI has become a detriment, not a tool. Yes. Because it's created a myoptic focus on short-term gain based on the deployment of resources and the ability to measure the effect. I spent eight, nine thousand dollars traveling to Israel for Canatech because an amazing entrepreneur slash attorney Amanda Ostritz said, you should go to Canatech. You'll get a lot of value out of it. I went there. I felt guilty about spending the money. I wasn't super well off. I didn't bring my wife and kids. I'm eating dinner in Tel Aviv going, oh, this is, I'm missing my family. And I went to Canatech and I met people and I mingled and I exchanged cards and I hobnobbed and I networked. Four or five years later, I reached out to one of those people to meet with a stealth mode vape tech company. It didn't end up translating into anything in that transactionally. But because I had met that person and because I hadn't worn out that relationship and because I wasn't always pitching that guy with a new deck and, hey, take a look at this, those relationships that I established over time by getting out there, putting myself out there, not having some NorCal second generation cannabis cultivator attitude about how we know it all, but really being hungry for the opportunity to create new relevancy, both nationally and internationally. Because of that, I, I can get past most gatekeepers and I can talk to most founders and CEOs because I haven't worn out those relationships and because I've built them over time. I realized after all that we'd been through with medical and legacy and the, you know the, the, the law enforcement experiences and the walk of shame that was those consequences, the only way that was all gonna be worth it is if I made sure that I participated in regulated cannabis and that the only way to participate in regulated cannabis was to sort of take all that second generation NorCal ego and just 
throw it away and go with the learner's mind and think about regulated cannabis through a continuing education lens. Because in real estate, when you're a real estate agent, you got continuing education requirements. And I'm like, okay, ready to change here? Continuing education. I'm going to just go out and network. And so every year I would throw on a suit or a collared shirt, put some respect on the fact that I was going someplace, go to Vegas, go to the NCIA events, go to the CCIA events, and just go out there consistently. Not always with an agenda, but always trying to understand the ecosystem, the players, the the, the entities, who's winning, who's losing, who were on a, got a raise, who's merging and you know acquiring. And, and, and because of that, in seven years, from Trenton to Tel Aviv, I've established a network and an ecosystem and an awareness of the ecosystem that has now become a lot of my value to people who work with me. You know, and, and, and so if somebody looked at that trip to Israel and said, well, what's the ROI of that? A, I couldn't have ex explained it, and B, you don't get to measure ROI in a short measurement when really you have to look back over it over years. It's like exercise. So, uh, so that is, you know, I think to your point, ROI is a very myopic lens. It is. So I think this is my longest episode ever. And I, I'm really, I'm really grateful for the conversation because this is all stuff that we really need to talk about. Um, well, but we're gonna have to break this one into two, wrap right now, and then do a third one and make it a trilogy. I know, right? I think so. <laughs> but I really, I really appreciate spending the time with you. And for people who want to follow you on social media or reach out, how would they do that? Yaro Lee, Yaro Lee Kubrin on LinkedIn, uh, YKSTC.com, which stands for Yaro Kubrin Special Teams Consulting. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. You know, I use my regular name and, uh, you know, I'm not shy. Thank not hard to reach. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Yaro. Thank you for the great conversations. We got a lot of work ahead of us, but I feel incredibly hopeful uh, especially just having colleagues like you out there fighting the good fight. So until next time. Thank you. Thank you for your time on this interview. I apologize for the barking dog. We've got a few canines in the family. <laughs> I appreciate the platform, the opportunity. I know we went way over and I appreciate you just leaving space for this conversation to just go where it went. And oh. I really Really appreciate being able to participate. There was no way that I was that I was going to stop us when we were when we were heading. We we're just rolling. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Until next time, my friend. Take care. Thank you. And everyone remember, Planted is twice a month. And if you like listening, please give us a review. Share it with a friend. Let us know what your favorite episodes are. And if you'd like to stay in touch over social media, we are Planted with Sarah Pion on Facebook and Planted with Sarah on Instagram and Twitter. You can also go to our website, www.plantedwithsarah.com or listen to us on our parent network, Radio Misfits Network, where there are other great podcasts like one of my favorites, the Winemakers Podcast. So check it out. You can listen to Planted wherever you listen to your favorite podcast, whether that's Pandora, Spotify, Amazon, Google, Apple, Stitcher, tune in. We are there. So join us. And until next time, stay curious, stay safe. And remember, it's a wild world out there. Be good to one another. Until next time, take care.